ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One morning, Sarah Donnelly packed her car to the gills with everything that would fit and left her home in Sydney's eastern suburbs to drive out west. She reached Dubbo, which was as far inland as she'd ever been. But that was only halfway. As the dirt turned red, Sarah kept on driving all the way to Bakhanji country. Sarah had a new job as a teacher at Wilcannia Central School. Wilcannia was a place that people had warned her about, saying it was a town you tried to avoid if you were driving that way, somewhere you should lock up the car if you did have to stop for petrol. But what Sarah has found in Wilcannia is an extraordinary community where she's worked harder but learned more than she ever thought possible. Her memoir of teaching in Wilcannia is Big Things Grow. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Tell me what was going through your head as you drove into Wilcannia that very first time. The first thing that was going through my head was a lot of curiosity and wondering where I had arrived. It's quite an amazing drive. You know, it's about 11 to 12 hours, depending how you go with traffic and what sort of time. So it gives you a lot of contemplation time and time to think and consider and imagine where you're going. But I really had no idea of what was going to greet me and meet me when I arrived there. So I guess on first glance, As you sort of head out through those rural areas, things do appear to get smaller in terms of the towns and as they get smaller, the great expanse of land on either side of you gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I certainly arrived to what seemed to be a pretty quiet place at the time. It was hot. I just remember the heat and the sun, which was quite exciting because I'm someone who loves the warm weather, not the cold. And yeah, arriving to wonder where everyone was and who I might meet. How big is Wilcannia? The sign, I think, says around 700 people. It it sort of fluctuates a little bit. But in comparison, the school that I'd come from had 600 students. So suddenly I found myself in a place where the town was almost the same size as just the students at my previous school. Is there a supermarket? There is a, a store in town. I'm not sure I'd call it a supermarket. It's a small sort of um, A mini shop. market. A mini market, exactly right. Um, and across the road from that is the Roadhouse. And there is a golf club and a pub and a cafe. There was a beautiful coffee shop that is having a bit of a break at the moment. Thinking back about your first days there, Sarah, and and you walking into this empty classroom, which is going to be your workplace, your home in a sense, and there are so many different ways to set up a classroom. How did you go about arranging yours? The first thing for me walking in there was all the, the curtains were down. And I think natural light is something that's so important. So that was one of the first things that I just had to sort of give it this new sense of life and open the blinds and open up. I guess it was a bit of a metaphor for opening up for the possibilities and to see outside the classrooms. You know, I remember someone saying to me, oh, but when the students walk past, they'll distract the students in your class. And I sort of, you know, I accepted that, but thought, well, isn't that what my job is? Isn't my job to make the learning so exciting in my classroom that that person can walk past and wave, but my students will very, you know, confidently and proudly stay focused on the learning that they did and also the lesson in itself of having to ignore things at the right time. So the first thing that I I wanted to do was really create a space, a comfortable space where the students felt invited, but they also felt that it was a safe place. And so using furniture and, and things like tents for a withdrawal zone and setting up different kind of areas within the classroom so that we could meet the needs that they had as they arose. But also creating a bit of a blank canvas because I think something that I've learned on my journey so far is how important it is that students have a part to play in that creation of the environment so that it's theirs. What had your granddad made for you that you unpacked? I was working in a year one classroom and teachers are amazing people. They are amazing in the way that they share and how creative they are. And I'd seen this teacher blog that I followed and that she had these wonderful floor desks. And so my grandfather, who is an amazing jack-of-all-trades and can build anything or create anything, I sketched up an idea 
and I sort of threw it to him and said, what do you think? And he asked me, we took measurements. So I, you know, measured up the smallest kid in the class and the (laughs) tallest kid in the class. And he built me three beautiful floor desks um, that were just the perfect size for a little year one student to cross their legs to sit comfortably underneath the floor desk. And we painted them with blackboard paint. So not only could they put things on them and use them as a space to sit on the floor, but they could also write and practice their maths problems and things on them as well. What about Uncle Sano, who works at the school? What did he make for you to use in class? We start every morning at school now with a morning circle, a yarning circle. And that's a time to check in and to you know, it gives me as the teacher a really wonderful understanding of how my students are walking into the classroom. You know, are they ready to learn or what do I need to do to help them find their own way to be ready to learn? And in that yarning circle, we wrote an acknowledgement of country. So every day the students would open that circle with their very own acknowledgement of country. And we used clapping sticks as our talking stick. So I had was lucky enough to take a student group to Alice Springs a few years before and I'd bought these really beautiful clapping sticks from an artist that I met there. And so the students, when I asked them, you know, have a look around the room, what would you like to use as our symbol for whose turn it is to speak, they chose these clapping sticks. And Uncle Sano came and joined us for one of our yarning circles in the morning and about a week later he came and very proudly and carefully handed me a set of clapping sticks that he had made himself to make sure we had some Wilcannia clapping sticks for our <laughs> yarning circle. On that first day when the classroom was ready just before the kids arrive, what's going through your mind? Were you nervous, excited? What, what was uppermost? I think there's always a sense of nerves, but it's an overwhelming sense of just excitement of who are these little people or big people, you know, teaching high school as well. Who are these people that are going to come into this room and how are we going to form this community together? And for me at this point, you know, all of the learning I'd planned for that first term was learning around Wilcannia and the river because I felt very strongly that I was a guest in their place and I wanted students to really have that sense of pride and development of their identity and the way that I hoped to enter their world and to truly understand it was by getting them to teach me about it. So for me, from the very beginning, it was just this huge sense of excitement about what I was going to learn. How important is music in your classroom? It is absolutely everything in my classroom. Music is a tool to get people's attention. Teachers have a whole toolbox of different things, clapping, different words. Often I use music, um, whether it's singing a song to divert from someone perhaps making the wrong choice and rather than calling it out, singing a song that is our song and all of a sudden it brings everyone's attention back to the place. It's a very powerful tool for mindfulness and for teaching, you know, meditation and different things. Um, One of my favourite activities is to play classical music and have a competition with students of who can lie the stillest (laughs) the longest. So it's a very powerful tool for calming and getting that sense of sort of, particularly after recess or lunch, bringing everyone back together. It's a wonderful way to... Um, inspire and invite reluctant readers and writers into the literacy process because most people have a connection with music in some way. Some people don't realise how much they have a connection with music, but everyone has a favourite song or a song that their, you know, their family played or something connects and evokes an emotion and a response. Yeah, music is definitely embedded in everything that I do. When it comes to the end of the day and it's time to say goodbye to your students, how do you do that? In my classroom with students, I would always have a secret handshake, which when I came to Wilcannia and had 10 students in my class, it was a sigh of relief because it was a little easier to remember those 10 individual (laughs) handshakes than the 30 I had had before. And it was actually something that my beautiful year three teacher did, you know, every day We didn't leave until we lined up at the door and we shook her hand. And 
for me, it's that moment that we as teachers, you know, schools are such complex environments, they're such busy places. And by ending the end of the day with a handshake and personalising it, it gives you that opportunity to make eye contact and to have that that second, that moment afterwards where for every student I could highlight something positive from that day, no matter how challenging the day was, in that moment of eye contact, in that quiet moment, just the two of us before they head out the door, it was important to remind them of something wonderful they had done. And I hope that that was then what they were able to take leaving the classroom Living in a small community like that, it means you've got the chance to really know everyone, you know, meet everyone's family. How regularly do you drop into your kids' homes? When I first moved here, I used to joke that families might get sick of me because it was very important to me as I was building relationships with students and with their families that I was regularly dropping by on my way home. You know, you can get from one end of town to the other pretty quickly out here. So it wasn't hard for me to, you know, turn left before turning right and drop into someone's house or sing out the front gate and people would come out and and have a bit of a a yarn standing on the front front yard. What did parents Um, think that you were there for at first, this teacher turning up after the school day? It's still the same that often people think, oh gosh, what have they done? You know, (laughs) what are you coming to tell me? What has my child, what naughty thing have they done? Um, and I always start start with, don't worry, they're not in trouble, they haven't done anything wrong, um, I'm actually here for something really good. And it, it's something really special about this place that, you know, you can have that kind of level of connection, celebrating together, sharing some of that writing, showing a photo of students standing up, you know, the students who would never stand in front of anyone and read, standing up in front of the class doing a poetry piece. For a parent to see that video is something that they can be really proud of. And what does it do for you as a, as a teacher? How does it help you as the teacher? I see how it's lovely for the, the parents and the families, but how does it help you? When you start to get to know a family, you understand so much more of a student's context and the backpack that they are bringing to school with them every day. I think it's really important in whatever context you're in that as a teacher we're not just working with the child, we're working with their family and their broader community and whoever is a part of that. When you have those connections with families and when you're able to share those stories, it also gives you currency when things don't go as planned. These families and and the locals have helped you out in lots of different ways as you learnt how to live in this different kind of place. How did Regina change your life at home? (laughs) So Regina came over one evening and we had a long, long, long conversation. And it was probably the first time that we really had an opportunity to share our belief systems, our values, our own experiences. And, you know, what we found is that even though we'd had very different experiences, we also had so many commonalities and similarities in what we believed was important and how we wanted to do things and what needed to happen. And it got to about seven o'clock at night and she said, oh, you know, could we pause to put home and away on? (laughs) And I, of course, said, yep, no worries and made another cup of tea. I think we'd been through six (laughs) cups of tea by this point. The woman can drink tea. And she turned the television on and, you know, I made a comment that I don't think you'll find Channel 7 on my TV, which was met with a very puzzled look. And I, for the many weeks before then, it must have been at least six weeks, had been watching two or three Alice Springs channels on my television and could sing all of the jingles because <laughs> I had no internet at home at that time and no phone reception when I walked inside. So I, I read a book or I watched a little bit of TV and um, she was horrified and then said, I'll fix it for you and taught me how to scan. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had Channel 9, Channel 7 and Channel 10. It was a big win. <laughs> the world was opened up for you again. Yeah. Why did you have to call a, a neighbour of yours, Karen, one night? I have a thing about reptiles. Why on earth are you living in, <laughs> in the far outback of New South Wales then? Sarah, Sarah. I think it's I think it is all a state of mind because <laughs> I have not seen well had not seen for two years of being here. I had managed not to see a snake. 
And I do think that perhaps they were there. I was just training my eye not to notice them. Um, But one night I was in the bathroom and noticed something moving beside my foot. And to my great horror, it was something long and thin and moving in a bit of an S shape. And I flew out of there, called Karen, who very kindly obliged. And I said, I'm not sure if it's a worm or a snake, but you're going to have to come here. (laughs) Well, it was quite a small snake. I think it was definitely a baby snake, but I thought how embarrassing. So I had to cover, even though I was terrified, I had to cover all bases. And did she save you from this attack of the killer worm? She not only saved me from the attack of the killer worm slash snake, um, which it was, you will be pleased to know, (laughs) confirmed that it was a snake, um, which made me feel much better about the whole situation. But she not only saved me, she also saved the snake because she is one of the kindest, (laughs) most loving in terms of animals people I know. And I then had to help with the process of relocating the baby snake back to the river. (laughs) What happens in Wilcannia, Sarah, in the lead up to the local rugby league finals? Footy is everything um, in town and it's such a fun time to be in community because this colour pops up everywhere. Um, There's two teams, Pantu Warriors and the Wilcannia Boomerangs. And so people paint their cars, they paint fences, we painted buses. So the town just comes alive and it's so fun because you you kind of know who supports which team, but all of a sudden these gorgeous murals pop up and there's streamers tied to flagpoles and all sorts of things. Was it it's a, a big decision for you to to make about which team to support? Yeah, I'm very much on the fence. I'm a very big Pantu Warriors supporter and a very big Wukanya Boomerang <laughs> supporter. And I have copped criticism for that because people have said, no, you, you've got to choose one. But being in the school, that's always my, that's my get out of jail free card because I say, you know, being in the school, it's very important that the kids don't feel like I'm not on their team. <laughs> and do you get out on the footy field yourself, Sarah? I was um, coaxed into playing with the the women's team. So it started off in the first year was league tag, which wasn't, it was a new experience for me. I'd played touch football and not very well, might I say. I think I'd played every, every school sport there was to play because that was something that dad was very passionate about. But I didn't play any of them very well. But I, they needed girls for the league tag and I, I didn't want to see the team not go ahead. So I put my hand up to play league tag. And then the following year um, it changed much to the girls' delight because the girls weren't that keen on playing league tag. They're tough out here. Um, And they wanted to play tackle. So by that point, I was sort of roped in and I did try very hard to prove that I needed to be doing something else of great importance at that time. But yet again, it came back to needing numbers. And I'm so grateful. And it's been such an amazing experience. I wouldn't change it at all. Are you an asset to the team, Sarah? Oh, (laughs) it depends what you define as an asset, I suppose. I can run and I can keep running and I can keep going. So when everyone else needs a break, I can sub on. So I'm I'm very reliable in that (laughs) sense. So I guess one may call me an asset. Um, I have scored two tries, which was very exciting. I think one of the students described it as the most awkward try they'd ever seen in their life, Um, but a try nonetheless. (laughs) You and the the rest of the team at Wilcannia School, you know, you're working hard to keep kids engaged with with learning and keep them engaged with school. When one of your students, Melva, was suspended, how did you reach out to her? I wrote her a letter. I think that suspension is something that's really, really difficult because, and I understand why why it has been a process, but it's really hard when you're working to build trust and relationships and safe place and a place where you're saying that mistakes are important and mistakes are okay because in maths and in writing, you know, in a spelling thing, we spend our whole time telling students that mistakes are okay. Yet when it becomes, when it comes to behaviour, we sort of turn around and say, well, actually that, that mistake's not okay. And suspension is a bit of an example of that because a student doesn't see it as a stopgap to take stock and to break and to try and reevaluate the behaviour and think about what they could do next time. You know, often students see that as a, 
well, you know, you've kind of given up on me in that sense and you've just shut me out of where you've been telling me I'm supposed to be. So it was important for me to write a letter and in that letter I essentially wrote those things that, you know, she needed to have time to think about it and we needed to work together but I promised that I would be there to work alongside her and to help her on that journey and to remind her that we were going to miss her and the classroom was absolutely still hers. What did you see that student do on her first morning back at school after the suspension? I turned around, I was on playground duty and she was really quietly, she'd come up and given me a hug, but she was really quietly just sitting outside in the sun and she pulled out the letter from an inside pocket and sat there and read it and it was crumpled. I could tell that she'd already read it a couple of times. Um, And a little while later, she came up to me and, you know, proudly wanted to make sure that I knew that she had the letter. Another time you spotted a, a student who'd been absent for a few days riding his bike past the school. What did you do? Well, I went straight to the bike rack and I sized up some of the bikes that were there and I discovered pretty quickly the one that I thought that I might be able to ride. So I ran as fast as I could over to the year eight classroom, I think it was, the eight, nine classroom, and knocked on the door and politely asked if I could speak to one of the students to ask him if I could borrow his bike. And the eyebrows went up and he looked at me with this very funny, confused look on his face and turned to one of the students who I'd taught a couple of years before and to sort of, I think, say, what the hell is she on about? (laughs) And Nico, with a smile on his face, rolled his eyes at me and said, yeah, nah, she's all right. You can trust her. She'll bring it back. Give her your bike. (laughs) So I had a a little bit of a sceptical, he gave me a sceptical gaze, but he nodded and he, I said, no worries. As I'm running out the door, I'll bring it back to you. Um, And so I ran to the front gate, jumped on the bike. What did the locals think of you as you hooning past them out on the streets of They thought it was absolutely hilarious. You go, Miss Sarah, I think it was, (laughs) as I was riding down. And and meanwhile, tucking in my skirt because, of course, I'm in teacher wear, you know. (laughs) The problem was I hadn't asked what the brakes were like on the bike. So as I started to started to move into the corner, I had to make a pretty sharp turn and then later figure out how to stop the bike without brakes. <laughs> and what happened when you caught up with the, the student you were chasing? I took a deep breath and I just kept riding next to him because I knew that if I asked any questions or if I made a silly suggestion like going to school or shall we go to class, I would be met just with an instant, you know, oh, no, this is a fun game now. Now I'm definitely going to say no. So I held my tongue despite what I wanted, I thought, you know, naturally what I was going to say. And we just started riding and I started asking him about a few different things and having a bit of a chat on the way and um, asked him where he was going and he told me where he was going and I said, well, I'm just out for a nice a nice ride. Can I join you? And again, a very strange look on his face, but he kind of shrugged and said, okay. Um, so we rode and rode and rode together and without any conversation, we rode into school. That was the win because that was a bit of a circuit breaker and then he was there, you know, all day and the next day and, and was coming back to school. One night you got a call from your dad saying that his dad, your beloved grandpa, was on a trip and was going to be stopping at Lake Air. What surprise did you and your class cook up? Yeah, so it was an amazing time where Lake Air was filled with water and there were all these birds there. So lots of people I knew were travelling over there. The call I got was to say that they were going to be, Dad said, Grandpa and, you know, my aunt and uncle, they're going to be having lunch in White Cliffs. And White Cliffs is an hour on, you know, a tar road from here. And I couldn't believe it because for me, that's, you know, that's the next suburb. It's down the road. (laughs) And how were my family who hadn't been out here, how were they coming all this way so close? And I didn't know. So I was very lucky that I was able to very quickly organise a school excursion the next day with the lovely support of all the families of my class, you know, of my students and also of the people that I was working with at the school. And under the, I suppose, bribery of hot chips and gravy from the White Cliffs shop because they're pretty 
pretty good in <laughs> the eyes of my students. We were able to jump in the bus, in our mini bus, and they were actually, they got there a little earlier than we'd thought. So by the time we got there, they were doing a tour. And so we went out to the airport and the kids were eating their chips, having their feed, and then all of a sudden someone was on lookout and they said, oh, we can see the bus. And they could see this bus sort of, it was miles away but heading in this direction. Everyone was very excited and quickly they took me back to the bus and I had to lie down so, you know, I'm face in dirt because the <laughs> bottom of the bus floor was filthy and I'm lying there while they were all standing outside. And as a couple of people, my family got off the bus and then my grandpa, grandfather walked off two steps and they said, excuse me, Mr Donnelly, we have a surprise for you. And they ran over, he's here now, you can come here now. And he was quite confused because he didn't know why these kids knew his name and who they were <laughs> and where they'd come from. I mean, they'd popped up from the middle of nowhere. And I think he was as surprised to see me and for a moment I thought maybe he doesn't even know who I am. And when he got over the initial shock, it was just this incredibly special moment to have you know, my my class, my little family there meeting my family, my pop. <laughs> um, and family out here is so important that for me to be able to share my family with them was just pretty special. Podcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. first arrived in town, one of the places that uh, Auntie Brenda encouraged you to visit was the cemetery. Why? The cemetery is a place of sadness, but it's also a place of pride and family and care. The Wilcannia Cemetery is, it, it's red dirt country out there, but the graves on top of graves are these incredible colours. There's all these beautiful flowers. There's really special, precious ceramic things that people have made. There's footy jerseys. There's um, crosses that were made by community. There's a recent addition has been this incredible headstone project that Annie Mon and Kelvin sort of ran with community and that was a healing and trauma project where people would come and actually mosaic a headstone for their loved one. And so there's all this colour. And then at night time, when the sun goes down, the stars, the solar lights on the graves come out. So it's almost a city of lights, you know, all over all these graves are all these beautiful solar lights that people are very lovingly and caring, put them on the graves of their family. It's also a really important place to understand as a guest here, I suppose, because you learn so much about the loss and the grief and the trauma in this place. And I think that you need to understand that to be here and to connect with people and families and to understand what's gone on. So going with Annie Brenda, she was able to give me a real understanding of history and some family history but she also encouraged me to go with my students and so I did and my class took me out there and what was really beautiful about that was them walking me around to introduce me to their family members and I've since been out there a number of times with students who are going through a tough time or who are going through their own challenges and we've been out there, their choice, we've been out there for some quiet contemplation or just as a calming place. It does really have this effect on people out here that you kind of go there and it's this this sense of just being there with family and, and allowing yourself to feel. So um, her advice to go out there and to then continue to connect with people out there was one that I'm very grateful for. How regularly have you found yourself at funerals in Wilcannia? Far too regularly. Um, I'm about to turn 32 and I've been here for three and a half years, almost four years. And without a doubt, I have been to more funerals in my very short time here than 
I had in any of my years before coming here. And, you know, people my age here, when I think about the amount of funerals they have been to, it's it's quite extraordinary. And what do students think about you, a teacher, turning up at a funeral? It's a really important, a really important part of being a part of community to be at that funeral. You know, as a teacher, you do become part of your student's life and your student's family. So when they're going through something so so difficult, you know, a loss of a family member, it's incredibly important to be there. And students always notice, you know, even if I haven't seen them there that day, they will always make a comment of, oh, you know, I saw you there yesterday, miss. The town is on the the Darling Backer River. What did that river look like when you first arrived? The Darling Barker River looked incredibly sad and you could feel the sadness in the community. I remember my my mum and my grandmother and my auntie actually came out to visit and I took them down to a favourite point in the river and we stood and I had two feet in um, dry land and a tiny trickle of water heading down one direction and, and going back the other way. Then in March 2020, pelicans started arriving in town. What did that mean? Pelicans always arrive when the water's coming, is what I was told. So we had this incredibly magical moment of these gorgeous big birds. And I, I, I coming from the ocean, I just couldn't believe seeing these majestic pelicans flying down. I just I couldn't quite comprehend it. And I was trying to understand where they'd come from or what it meant. Um, But everyone said the pelicans come before the water comes down. So then there was this excitement and this buzz and this energy of there's water coming and we heard there was water coming and then began the waiting game. So that day I had a few different parent meetings. So every time I'd go to a parent meeting, I'd just chuck a little detour (laughs) and head past the river on the way. And it was getting closer and closer and closer. And we have a weir in Wilcannia and we started seeing water. You know, there were people standing at all of the points where you could watch the water come down. There were people that were just sitting there all day watching and waiting and feeling it. Um, So I kept dropping in to see how we were going and managed to organise that we could actually fill the school bus um, because I felt very strongly that it was important that we got out there to see the water coming down that our kids needed to be a part because it was clearly something that was so important to community with the amount of people that were there. What was that moment like where the water started to flow in? I didn't realise how much it would affect me. It was almost like this sense of a weight being lifted off your shoulders and, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't solve some of the other environmental challenges out there. I was under no illusion but when I'd heard people talking about the river and what a loss and what it made them feel for not being able to go down there and swim or fish or take the kids yabbying or camp by the river because actually looking at it just made them sad, this feeling of the water coming down was invigorating and it was just this yeah, I suppose this weight feeling like it was being lifted off the entire community. And I was so excited to see what it would mean for the place. Your students have had experiences of making canoes from canoe trees along the river there. What's that process involve? So we head out on country with elder Uncle Uncle Badger Bates. Uncle Badger had chosen a tree and he talked to us about why he had chosen this tree. And it's a it's a lengthy process. You know, first of all, they mark out the canoe and then it's using traditional methods um, to create a bark canoe. So it's almost like chipping away and just cutting around the edge and then using hammers because what happens is it sort of pops off the tree. Um, and at the same time, our students were learning how to make coolamons and different things. And Uncle Badger described it to me as that trees are like people, like skin Um, you know, we get a cut and the skin heals. Well, trees are exactly the same. And so this method, rather than cutting down a tree, you're just almost taking a little bit of skin off the side of the tree. And then when it's completed, you rub ochre in to cover it. And slowly over time, the scar heals. 
Um, so it's quite a special thing to be a part of for these young ones, learning about history and culture and traditional practice, but also making their own little mark on history because for years they can now bring their children to this scar tree and have a look at this beautiful bark canoe that was made. In 2020, of course, you got the news, like everyone everywhere did, that there was this new pandemic. In the early stages, Sarah, what did it mean for your life in Wilcannia? Um, in the early stages, it didn't really mean much, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I was incredibly grateful for the fact that remote living, in a way, was kind of always like isolation, you know, there wasn't restaurants that I couldn't go to. I couldn't not go and get my coffee. Um, I couldn't not go to the gym. Thank goodness one of the great things about lockdowns was that all of these exercise companies started doing home workouts. So I suddenly had a much greater uh, breadth of <laughs> choice, um, but it didn't change anything. You know, that was my life. I was still able to go for my big walk and it didn't really change anything. I think when it did start to change things was when the Premier encouraged for students to stay home unless they were the children of essential workers or vulnerable children and to pivot to home learning. And that's when things really started to seem different. What did that mean for your kids, this home learning directive? You know, our students, most of them didn't have internet at home. And at that time, there was really challenging reception in town. So there's, you can only have Telstra, you know, I'm forever telling people that are coming to visit, make sure you get a Telstra SIM because otherwise you won't be able to find me. And you'd walk inside a house and lose reception. So if you didn't have broadband internet inside, it was very challenging to use your phone inside. I mean, everyone knew the corner that you had to stand in or the window you had to put your hand out. But when you're trying to have a conversation with someone, that wasn't ever ideal. Mm. Um, so we knew very quickly that we just didn't have the connection and connectivity with the students. We couldn't just pivot, not to say that pivoting to home learning for anyone was easy. And I have absolute respect and admiration for you know, everyone for how they handled the situation, but particularly for teachers. But we knew that that wasn't going to be an option for us. And I was lucky to work with an incredible school team um, who all just started to work together and think creatively and think outside the box for what that would have to mean for us, like others in our situation. So what did you start dropping off to kids who were having to stay at home but couldn't join online virtual classrooms? We started dropping home learning packs and even though we were all kind of making up, making it up as we went, the teaching profession are very sharing um, and so people were instantly sharing great ideas and we were working to tailor content and what we normally would have taught in our classes but created in a way that it would be accessible for students' activities and things for people to do at home. That also included, you know, at our school, we serve breakfast, we have a breakfast club, we serve lunch and recess and fruit break through the day. So suddenly families who were expecting to have their kids at school for this week and eating meals, all of a sudden you've got many more mouths to feed. So we started doing home cooking challenges as well. What idea did you come up with in a Zoom staff meeting? At the beginning of the year, we had a yarning circle and I threw a ball of wool around. And I, from memory, I had red, black and yellow wool and we threw it around and when you caught it, you had to hold on and then you keep throwing it around. And at the end, you know, everyone was holding on and we sort of stood back and I asked the kids what it meant. And they said, um, it means mob, we're mob, we're family, we're all connected. And so flash forward to uh, a Zoom staff meeting where my staff, like teachers everywhere, were feeling that real weight of um, lack of relationships. You know, relationships is the core business of what we do. And all of a sudden, we couldn't see our students. We couldn't talk to our students. And in a small community, you know, that was even more extraordinary because normally we see them after school, before school, on the weekend. Um, and suddenly we found ourselves in these little silos and away from everyone. So the staff were sharing their own feelings and some were a bit despondent and some were a bit confused. And one of my colleagues said, yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if we could throw a ball of wool like we did at the beginning of the year to remind everyone that they're connected? And she said, oh, 
I know that's a bit crazy. And I sort of thought about it and I went, oh, I think crazy is exactly what we need. (laughs) And I like crazy. So that night I was lucky enough to speak to a friend and he had a drone and we then flew the drone over an area of Wilkenia to see if it would work because I thought how cool would it be if we could make a bit of a statement about this and follow the bus delivering the home learning packs because someone needs to make a bit of a statement about what's going on. And we figured out that the drone would work following the car, but we needed something. A ball of wool probably wasn't going to stand out. So I made a few phone calls and we got all of the caution tape that we could from Broken Hill, (laughs) from hardware stores and cheap as chips. Oh, if anyone needs caution tape, (laughs) give me a a call because we've still got caution tape. Um, But we managed to, the next day, just set out our normal routine of the day-to-day delivering the packs, picking up the completed work. And we went out and rolled metres and metres and metres of this caution tape. And at every house, our students to hold on. And we connected everyone. (laughs) How did music become part of the mix? We put the video to song. So when we had the footage, you know, instantly it was, if we're going to evoke emotion here, if we're going to connect with people it needs to have music. And for me, the thing I was missing the most was my weekly singing lessons with the students. So the night after filming us, I remember being exhausted. Um, We'd had so much fun, but we were exhausted. And I remember going home and pulling out my guitar and from Little Things, Big Things Grow, beautiful Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly song is something that I've taught students from kindergarten right up to year 12. And it's a great one to unpack history and learning. There's another reason why music's so amazing. But we had I'd taught that song. And so I thought, well, that's an easy one that I know the kids could sing along to. So how, how could we do a virtual singing lesson? So I wrote a message which was from what my staff had said in the meeting a few days before and how they were feeling and wrote a message to our students and our community to remind them essentially that, you know, this is what's going on but we're we're strong and we're all still in this together and we're family and we're still thinking of you. And the local radio station put out the song and invited people to send videos of themselves singing along and we compiled this with the footage of rolling out the caution tape and we shared it on our school Facebook and it was quite extraordinary the reaction the response we got from teachers from just people actually all over the world who shared the song and I think at that time everyone could connect with what was happening and could connect with the message. How did the students the kids react to seeing themselves in that video? They were so excited. I think I was, I would never say that I could be sick of that song, (laughs) but it was played and played. When we finally returned to school after that first lockdown, um, it was played and played and played and played. Um, But it's so lovely, you know, when they see themselves or they see their family members, it's really special and something they're really proud of. They keep saying, when are we going to do the next little big thing, Squirrel? Out of that, uh, you were nominated for an RE Music Teacher Award. Where did you watch the ceremony? Unfortunately, we couldn't make it to the ARIAs because, of course, it went for a virtual event that year. Um, So my principal very kindly invited all of our staff to attend at his house and I was supposed to be, you know, away in a quiet room and we had the computer facing one way so it seemed like I was away in a quiet room (laughs) but really... Behind the computer screen um, were two big couches and a number of other chairs of my wonderful colleagues who were there to support me. How how long did it take for you to get congratulations from beyond that room? Another special thing about being in a small town is that it only takes a couple of minutes before someone is knocking on the door (laughs) when they've heard the news. Um, So it was quite beautiful, actually. It was really special. Some of the students ran and they took great joy in telling me how they'd run from different houses and met on the street. Um, And they arrived at the door and knocked very loudly and said, is Miss Sarah here? We have to talk to Miss Sarah. So it was very special. Back then, Sarah, COVID was such an unknown, you know, and, and the prospect of it getting into Aboriginal communities where there are lots of people with pre-existing health concerns was really scary. What do you remember hearing of the first COVID cases in Wilcania? 
Yeah, it was really scary. Um, I'd been a part of many community conversations between 2020 and into 2021 around um, communities' concerns around what it would mean if COVID came to Wilkenya. I, I was feeling pretty anxious about it, I suppose. Um, a few days before it first, there was a positive case in Wilkenya. I'd been sitting with some of um, our community members and leaders and they were really talking about it and they were quite distressed about it. And I think distressed about we can't, what can we do? Like what can we do to stop it? And the reality for everyone everywhere was that we couldn't actually do anything to stop it. Um, so when we got the news of the first cases, I was just so worried for that family and when you hear, you know, it's not just a number. So every time that there was another case in Wilkenya, that was either someone I knew very well or it was someone's auntie or uncle or cousin or, you know, it was someone that was really important to me or important to the people who were important to me. So mm. um, each number meant something really significant and it was, it, was, it was really worrying in those initial stages. How hard was it for people to isolate? It's pretty difficult to isolate when there's you know, in some houses, 14 people in the house or 12 to 14 people in the house and there's one bathroom. And I think that's what was the most terrifying was when people initially got phone calls, you know, they would call me and say, they've just told us to do this because I don't think that um, some of the people on the call centres understood, rightly so, didn't understand what Wilkenia's context was. So some of the things that they were suggesting to people, whether it was about isolation or, you know, having groceries delivered and different things like that, those things that are so normal and part of routine in the city were not available where we were. Yeah, I think it was it was pretty scary in those initial stages because people couldn't isolate. They weren't able to. And what role did you take on, Sarah, during that? We needed some support around food and getting supplies to people because people weren't ready for it. They didn't have, you know, cupboards stocked and and it was pretty clear straight away that people were really scared and they were fearful um, and we needed to find a way that we could ease people's fear, I think, by providing them the things that they needed, but also just to get, in many cases, basic human needs met um, with food or sanitary products and things like that. So I became involved with the local emergency management committee and I was working within a subcommittee of local organisations and we were leading the food distribution effort. One of your students, Kate, was in isolation at the caravan park. How did you mark her birthday? Birthdays have always been something that's really important to me. My grandmother, my dad's mum, made these extraordinary birthday cakes every year. I mean, one year I had an apple, this enormous apple, because I was obsessed with New York City and I wanted to go to New York. Um, and anything, there was nothing out of out of the ordinary. So in my adult years, I've taken on a little bit of this love of cake making. Um, one year I did a giant transformer for someone's 21st. I've done, a, you know, a dog cake for my gorgeous friend and her dog, Scouty. Um, but when I heard it was her birthday, something had to be done. We had to mark it and we had to make it special. So I asked if I made a cake, what kind of cake would you like? And quick as, <laughs> I'd like a black and gold cake, please, miss. So quickly got on the phone. I had a week. I got on the phone to mum. And one thing that was amazing during that time was the postal service. I mean, people were sending things to us in Wilkenia and our post office was working in overdrive, um, but things were making its way to us really quickly. So I called mum and desperately asked her to buy everything that she could that was black <laughs> and gold and related to cake making. And she sent this beautiful box out to me. So we were able to go to this the isolation caravans in the COVID isolation area and health very kindly allowed us to go in there to set up decorations and bring this beautiful three-tiered black and gold cake. And was she happy with that? Yeah, she was very <laughs> happy with it. I mean, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, that with wearing COVID masks, we've I think, learnt to reappreciate eyes. Um, and although I couldn't see the smile, I could see her smiling in her eyes. On the, the long drives that you make back to Sydney, back east, 
do you shift identities a little? Like, do you feel a bit like a transformer on those drives? <laughs> it's very weird. It is a very strange. I think I feel a bit like a transformer when I arrive in one of those two places. Um, and the the drive is almost this really important. I much prefer driving back because it's that sense of understanding and it does, it gives you that time, I suppose, to transform or to recalibrate and to think about where you're going. Um, Because I am the same person in both of those places, but I think that what's important to me does shift in those places. You know, being out here has taught me a much greater appreciation and connection to my environment back in Sydney. And one thing I really hope is that, you know, wherever I live, the lessons that Wilkenya has taught me about people and about connection, about country, about patience, about slowing down and appreciating the birds singing and and the little things, which actually aren't that little when you realise how important they are. I want to make sure that I take all of these lessons into a city or another town or wherever I end up. Is it like having a heart in two places? Absolutely. And I, I think that that heart is so filled by different things. Like it's quite amazing to go back and be in Sydney and be with my family and friends and swim in the ocean and eat delicious food. And um, I'm on such a high leaving there because I just feel so buoyed by this beautiful, you know, family love. But likewise, the minute I step foot on that laneway or the minute I drive over the bridge leading into Wilkenya, I have this enormous sense of like relief and just being home. So yeah, it certainly feels like, I don't know if my heart is torn in two and in both places, or maybe I have two hearts, but it definitely is that great connection with two incredibly different places. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing something of your story and and of the story of Wilkenya on Conversations. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much, Sarah. Sarah Donnelly's memoir is Big Things Grow. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Miyukiaki Ranta here from the Earshot Podcast. In our latest season, we're telling stories about remembering. And there's an intriguing episode about Sunil Badami's uncle, who was India's best known skeptic. I've seen the skeptic eat fire, pull jeeps with hooks in his back, levitate in the air, stand on his head, buried in sand. But at the heart of the skeptic's magic was a disappearing act. I can only imagine how she slipped away in the night giving her sleeping children a last tender kiss before taking the overnight express to Madras with her lover. When Sunil pulls back the curtain of his family secrets, he uncovers a mystery whose unspeakable shadow has loomed over three generations. But he also discovers more questions. What does it mean if the greatest trick is the one our memories play on us? That's the latest episode of Earshot, Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.